Being made alive in Christ makes a world of difference in your assumptions about reality and the directions of your life goals. It's a connection that brings spiritual life into our broken world and our broken souls. It reveals God's plan of redemption in the present for all to see. Welcome to Every Last Word, a radio and internet program with Dr. Philip Ryken, teaching the whole Bible to change your whole life. Today we continue our study in The Message of Salvation by looking at the biblical teaching of being made alive in Christ. We'll hear what implications it has for faithful everyday living. Well, Phil, today's message is on being alive in Christ, or what some would call our union with Christ. Seems like a pretty broad concept, so what should we know going in? Well, Mark, I'm glad you used the phrase union with Christ. That's actually my favorite doctrine. It's not a phrase Christians use a lot, so it may not be familiar to some of our listeners, but you know, all over the place in the New Testament, we see these two little words, in Christ. And the idea of union with Christ is that we are joined to Christ for all of the blessings of salvation. We are chosen in Christ, we're justified in Christ, we're sanctified in Christ, we're glorified in Christ. All of those blessings of salvation come to us in Christ. All right, well, it sounds then like we really need to be in Christ, but how do we do that in a practical sense? I mean, how do we get into Christ? Well, the way to get into Christ, the Bible gives us a very simple answer to that question. We get into Christ by faith. It's by trusting, by believing, by resting our lives on Jesus. And when we do that, when we put our trust in Jesus, then all of the blessings that he has become ours. And this is the great blessing of union with Christ that we'll be talking about in today's message from Ephesians 2. Thanks, Phil. Uh, Turn in your Bible now to Ephesians chapter 2, and let's hear God's Word for us today. Tonight we come to this great truth that when a born-again sinner comes to saving faith, a most remarkable thing happens. That new believer is joined to Jesus Christ in an unbreakable spiritual union. In the conversion of a sinner wrote the Puritan William Perkins. There is a real union whereby every believer is made one with Christ. If you want to know what a Christian is, a Christian, very simply, is someone who is in Christ. As Paul told the Ephesians, this is Ephesians chapter 1, back in verse 13, you also were included in Christ when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. A theological term for the Christian's inclusion in Christ is union with Christ. And many theologians view this doctrine as the key to understanding the message of salvation. John Murray called union with Christ the central truth of the whole doctrine of salvation. John Calvin considered it a matter of spiritual life and death. He wrote, we must understand that as long as Christ remains outside of us and we are separated from him, all that he has suffered and done for the salvation of the human race remains useless and of no value to us. All that he possesses is nothing to us until we grow into one body with him. 
Now, to understand why union with Christ is so central to the message of salvation, it helps to remember why we need to be saved in the first place. And as we have seen throughout this series of sermons, the problem of humanity is sin with all of its deadly consequences. And I doubt whether there is a clearer statement of this sinful problem than we find here in Ephesians chapter 2 in the first three verses. Well, the Apostle Paul explains that outside of Christ, humanity is dead, dominated and doomed by sin. And to begin with, sin means death. This is verse 1, as for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. And really, there are only three ways to describe the spiritual condition of the human race. Either we are healthy, or we are sick, or we are dead. Some say that human beings are healthy, that we are basically good, that we are making moral progress all the time. Of course, this view is hopelessly unrealistic. As any copy of any newspaper printed anywhere in the world can demonstrate. Many others admit that we are not quite healthy, but think that somehow we can be nursed back to health. If only we could set up the right schools or pass the right laws, then all would be right with the world. And of course, these strategies for solving humanity's problems are bound to fail because they're based on a fundamental misdiagnosis of the human condition. What the Bible teaches is that we are dead in our transgressions and sins, not merely sick or even dying, but actually dead. This is not just a figure of speech, it's a spiritual reality. Spiritually speaking, as long as we remain outside of Christ, we are dead in our transgressions. There's no way to educate us or legislate us back to health. The place to look for us is not in the infirmary, but in the mortuary. We should call for the coroner, for God has pronounced us dead in sin. Not only are we dead in our sins, but we are also dominated by them. And in verses 2 and 3, Paul describes a sort of triple domination in which sinners are controlled by the world and by the devil and by the flesh. You can see there that first he describes sin as following the ways of this world. The world, in this case, means human existence without God. It means creation disordered by sin. The way of the world is to live for self, seeking pleasure and power. You see, until a sinner becomes a follower of Jesus Christ, he or she cannot help but pursue all of the godless values of this world. In the original Greek, Paul actually speaks of walking in the way of the world. It's an image that suggests that worldliness is a whole way of life, that sin is the unbeliever's daily habit. And in the second place, we are dominated by the devil, whom Paul describes as the ruler of the kingdom of the air. Satan is the malevolent presence behind this godless age, trying to control the thoughts and hearts of men. And in his struggle for control, the devil meets with some success. Paul speaks here of the spirit who is now at work in those who are 
disobedient. And what he means by spirit is not so much the devil himself as he means the spirit of this age. The point really is that Satan works through the attitudes and through the structures of human society to bring sinners under his evil sway. Whether they realize it or not, those who are outside of Christ are followers of Satan. Oh, obviously this is true of people who are demon-possessed or who practice the occult. But it is equally true of those who worship idols, not only primitive idols of stone and wood, but also modern idols such as work, sex, leisure, self, and the state. Ultimately, these idols represent the rulers and the authorities and the powers of this dark world, the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. You see, to be outside of Christ is to be dead in sin, dominated by the world, dominated by the devil, and dominated, finally, by the flesh. And this is what we find in verse 3, that all of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts. And here the Bible condemns all our proud ambitions and unholy desires. There is not one living soul who is not subject to sinful appetites. The Scripture says that all of us, meaning both Jews and Gentiles, live this way. This is the totality of our depravity. That apart from Jesus Christ, every human being at every time and in every place has gratified the cravings of the sinful nature. And if in the quietness of the service you examine your own heart, if you are yet outside of Christ, surely you can recognize that this is true of you as well. That you yourself are dominated by the attitudes of this world and that perhaps not only your own sinful flesh, but even the devil himself is behind these sinful desires. You see, the point is that as long as we remain outside of Jesus Christ, we will continue to be dominated by the world, the flesh, and the devil. As Paul goes on to say in verse 12, although we haven't read it yet, we are separate from Christ. We are without God in the world. From the outside, we are controlled by the world's general outlook, which is inevitably godless. And from the inside, we are held captive by our own desires, which are inherently rebellious. And behind it all, I suppose, smiling smugly is the evil one who seeks to keep us enslaved to sin. We are dominated by the world, the flesh, and the devil, and yet, really, we have only ourselves to blame for these oppressive forces. Look at the end of verse 2, are at work in those who are disobedient. Thus, in the final analysis, it is our own disobedience that has brought us under this triple domination. You know, even that is not the worst of it. Oh, it's bad enough to be dead in sin, dominated both inside and out by Satan. But what is worse still is that humanity is doomed to fall under the wrath of God. This is what we find at the end of verse 3, that like the rest, we were by nature objects of wrath. The problem of humanity is not only sin, but also its ultimate consequence, which is eternal judgment. Wrath is 
God's holy hatred of sin and his just determination to punish it, his personal and righteous and constant hostility to evil. It is his refusal to compromise with sin and his resolve instead to condemn it. Wrath, in this sense, is not so much an emotion as if God were somehow spiteful, as it is a decision of his perfect will. And surely it is right and good for God to be utterly opposed to sin and ultimately to punish it. And therefore the Bible teaches everywhere that the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men. Now I suppose that there might be someone here that takes this view of fallen humanity, that outside of Christ we are spiritually dead, that we are dominated by sin, that we are doomed to divine judgment, and say that it is overly pessimistic. I think rather that it is realistic. Indeed, that the Bible describes our situation as it actually is in the hope that we will see our desperate need of salvation. Then we come... To these two words, but God. That is how verse 4 begins in the original Greek with those two words, but God. And with those two words, we pass from sin to salvation, from death to life. Martin Lloyd-Jones claimed that these two words in and of themselves, in a sense, contain the whole of the gospel. The gospel tells of what God has done, God's intervention. It is something that comes entirely from outside us and displays to us that wondrous and amazing and astonishing work of God. All of that is captured in these two words, but God. The phrase confronts us with a radically God-centered view of salvation. If we are to be saved at all, we can only be saved by sovereign grace. But God, you see, has done what only He could do, which is to save us from all our sins. And if we are to ask why God takes this gracious initiative, the answer is that salvation flows from His loving heart. Paul's description of our problem, the problem of our sin at the end of verse 3, ends with the attribute of God's wrath. Let's see how his description of the answer to all of our problems includes so many other of God's perfections. His love, his mercy, his grace, his kindness, God's saving attributes spill out one after another because of his great love for us. Verse 4, God who is rich in mercy. Verse 5, by grace you have been saved. Expressed, verse 7, in His kindness. You see, it is out of His divine affection, out of His tender compassion, out of His unmerited favor, out of His gentle care that God reaches down and saves doomed and dying sinners. And if we proceed to ask how God saves us, the answer is that He saves us by uniting us to Jesus Christ. Throughout this series of sermons, we've been seeing what Jesus did in human history to accomplish our salvation. And let me just remind you of it, that by his death on the cross, Jesus redeemed us from slavery. 
and he atoned for our sins. He reconciled us back to God. And then by his resurrection from the grave, Jesus triumphed over death. You see, if we are to be saved, then somehow what Christ did on the cross and what Christ did through the empty tomb somehow must be transferred to us so that the salvation which he accomplished is applied to our own situation. And this is why I say that Christians must be united to Christ, joined to him by faith in order to be saved. Union with Christ is the connection by which Christians are joined to Christ for every blessing of salvation. If we ask what kind of connection it is, the answer is that it is a spiritual connection. It's a union established by God the Holy Spirit. The Scripture says we know that we live in Him and He in us because He has given us of His Spirit. Our union with Christ is also covenantal. That is to say, it has a real legal basis in God's eternal covenant. And what connects us to Jesus Christ is not only the Holy Spirit, but also the fact that God has appointed Jesus as our representative. And then our union with Christ is also vital. It's living, it's alive, it's like the fruitful union between a vine and its branches. And it is a most intimate connection, so much so that the Bible compares it to that mysterious sexual union between husband and wife. You see, it is out of this intimate and vital and spiritual connection with Jesus Christ that the Christian receives all of the blessings of salvation. Back in Ephesians chapter 1, you might just look back in your Bibles at the end of chapter 1, where Paul explains what God did for Jesus Christ. And in verses 19 and following, he describes the mighty strength which God exerted in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and placed all things under his feet. Every time we recite the Apostles' Creed, we say the third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sitteth at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. You see, the amazing thing that we are discovering is that when God the Father did all this for Christ His Son, raising Him from the dead, seating Him on His heavenly throne, He was also doing it for all of His people. This is the doctrine of union with Christ, that we are included in whatever Jesus has done to save us. Everything that Jesus ever did counts for everyone who is joined to Him by faith. And here in Ephesians 2, we are introduced to three specific things that God did for us also when he did them for Christ. And to explain these three things, Paul virtually invents three new words. He adds the preposition with the three standard Greek verbs. In verse 5, God made us alive with Christ. Verse 6, he raised us up with Christ. And again in verse 6, he seated us with him. And these three new words, making alive, raising us up, seating us, these 
Three words refer, if you want the proper terms for them, to the resurrection and to the ascension and to the session of Jesus Christ. First, God made us alive with Christ, which refers to the resurrection. And if you've ever been in church on an Easter Sunday, you know that God raised Jesus from the dead and elevated him to a whole new mode of existence. Three days after Jesus was dead and buried, God made him alive again, raising him in a glorious body of immortal splendor. You see, what the Scripture is saying to us is that somehow we were included in that resurrection, that whatever spiritual life we have flows from our risen Savior, that God made us alive with Christ. And it's a good thing He did. For spiritually speaking, we were as dead as Christ was. That's what we saw at the beginning of this passage in verse 1. We were dead in our transgressions and sins, but God gave us life after spiritual death. And from the very moment that God brought us to spiritual life, regenerating us by His Spirit, we received a whole new life in Christ. God has brought us back from spiritual death by uniting us with the risen Christ and in that union imparting to us His resurrection life. And next, God raised us up with Christ. And this refers not to His resurrection, but to His ascension. Forty days after Jesus was raised from the dead, He ascended to heaven, His Disciples saw him taken from earth before their very eyes, trailing clouds of glory. God raised Jesus to a place of heavenly beauty and power. And here we discover that we were included in that ascension. In one of his great Easter hymns, Charles Wesley expressed it like this, Soar we now where Christ hath led, following our exalted head. Made like Him, like Him we rise. Ours the cross, the grave, the skies. We have been raised together with Christ and now we are living in the heavenly realms, the Bible says. Not literally, of course, for God has not yet called us to our eternal home, but there is a real sense in which we already live in the atmosphere of heaven. We participate in the joyful worship and the loving service of the life to come. And then in the third place, God seated us with Christ in the heavenly realms, in Christ Jesus. The proper theological term for this is session. It's simply a word for sitting down. Having been raised from the dead and ascended into heaven, Jesus now sits at the right hand of His Father. And one reason Jesus sits is because he has already completed all the work of our salvation. When a king sits down, it's not only to rest, but also to rule. Having vanquished all his enemies, Jesus now governs his servants. Therefore, when God placed Jesus on his throne, he seated him in the heavenly realms far above all rule and authority and power and dominion. Jesus Christ has finished his work and taken his seat. Now he 
sits on his throne, reigning over earth and heaven in kingly majesty. And you see, we have, in a sense, taken our seat with him. This is not just a metaphor. It is a spiritual reality. Since we are united to Jesus Christ, we share in the victory and the exaltation of his eternal kingdom. And you see, to be united to Christ is to be elevated to the very throne of God. Once you were dead in your sins, you were dominated by the world and the flesh and the devil, you were doomed indeed to hell. But you see, now you are alive in Christ and destined for glory. And by virtue of your union with Christ, you are no longer controlled by sin and by Satan, but have authority over them. And this is all because you were included. Yes, you were included when God raised his son from the dead and lifted him to heaven and seated him on his kingly throne. We are united to Christ, Christ risen, Christ ascended, and Christ enthroned. Now those are three specific ways that we are joined to Jesus Christ, but those are not the only ways. No, to be united to Christ is to be connected to everything he has ever done for our salvation. It's sometimes said that the most important word in the New Testament is the preposition in, especially when it is joined to the name Christ. It's such a little phrase, in Christ. And I suppose we often read right past it, and yet it must be important because it occurs more than 200 times in the New Testament including several times in the verses we've been looking at. Often believers are said to be in Christ. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. On other occasions, the Bible speaks of Jesus Christ in the believer, Christ in you, the hope of glory. See, you are in Christ, and Christ is in you. And what makes a Christian a Christian is being in Christ. It's very simple. If you are not in Christ, then you are not a Christian. But if you are in Christ, that is to say, if you are united to him, then you have a share in everything that Christ has ever done. And I do mean everything. Not only his resurrection, not only his ascension, not only his session, but much more besides. This is Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3. God has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. Whatever spiritual blessing you may care to mention, it comes through being joined to Jesus Christ. Let me just mention a few of those blessings. I'll mention them quickly. It's probably more than we can take in, but that's part of the point. To begin at the beginning, election is in union with Christ. You can see it there in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4. He, that is God, chose us in Him, that is Christ, before the creation of the world. It's in Christ that we were chosen, in Christ that we were predestined. You see, this is the grace of God, that God chose us in Christ before the creation of the world. And so this doctrine of union with Christ goes as far back into eternity as God goes. Even when salvation was only a plan in the mind of God, we were already connected to His Son. This grace was given us in Christ Jesus. I'm quoting from 2 Timothy chapter 1. This grace was given us in Christ Jesus before the beginning of time. 
Election's only the beginning. Every subsequent aspect of salvation comes to us by virtue of our union with Christ. It's true of redemption. In him we have redemption through his blood. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 7. It's true of reconciliation. In the second Corinthians chapter 5, God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting men's sins against them. Furthermore, we are united with Christ in our regeneration. It is in Christ that the Christian becomes a new creation. And we are united to Christ in our justification. That great judicial act by which God credits the very righteousness of Jesus Christ to a believing sinner. If we ask how that declaration is made, how it happens, it happens in Christ. God made Christ who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. What about sanctification? That process by which a Christian becomes more and more like Christ. This progress in holiness is the supernatural result of being united to Christ. And so at the end of our passage in verse Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, Paul says that we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus, to do good works. So that just as we are justified in Christ, so also we are sanctified in Christ. And not even death brings union with Christ to an end. We may say once in Christ, always in Christ. Those who have been united to Christ can never be separated from him. Thus the Bible speaks on occasion of believers dying in the Lord or even of being dead in Christ. And if we are joined to Christ in death, then surely we must be joined to him for life after death. And this brings us back to Ephesians 2, where, as we have seen, God declares that we have been raised to heaven with Christ. One day we will finally be glorified in union with Christ. Glorification is that instantaneous transformation of the Christian into the glorious image of Christ. And of course, this splendid event will take place in union with Christ. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Thus, the end of all our ends, the glory of all our glories will take place in Christ. And I suppose heaven will be an eternal unfolding of all of the glorious implications of what it means to be united to Jesus Christ. From everlasting to everlasting, you are united to Jesus Christ. His election was your election. His death was your death. His resurrection was your resurrection. His exaltation was your exaltation. So that even now at this very moment, his life is your life. And his glory will become your glory. You see, it really is true that God has provided everything we need for true spiritual life in Jesus. It was Calvin who wrote that if we seek strength, it lies in his dominion, that is in Christ's dominion. If purity in his conception... If gentleness, it appears in his birth, for by his birth he was made like us in all respects that he might learn to feel our pain. If we seek redemption, it lies in his passion. If acquittal in his condemnation, 
if remission of the curse in his cross, if satisfaction in his sacrifice, if purification in his blood, if reconciliation in his descent into hell, if newness of life in his resurrection, if immortality in the same, if inheritance of the heavenly kingdom, it is to be found in his entrance into heaven. And if we seek protection, if security, if abundant supply of all blessings, it is to be found in his kingdom. And if we seek untroubled expectation of judgment, it is to be found in the power given to him to judge. In short, since rich store of every kind of good abounds in him, let us drink our fill from this fountain and from no other. You see, what the Scripture says is true. God has provided every spiritual blessing in Christ. And these blessings are easy to obtain. Do you know how to get them? Anyone who wants the blessings of salvation may obtain them simply by getting into Christ. The only way to get into Christ is by faith. So many times, more than 50 times in all, the New Testament speaks of trusting in Christ or believing into Christ, and that's because it is by faith that Christ dwells in your heart. And if you want to be united to Christ, you must believe in Him. You must embrace Him with open arms and trust Him with your whole heart. It is by grace you have been saved through faith. And it was this doctrine of union with Christ by faith, which saved the great evangelist George Whitfield. Whitfield had been reading a wonderful little book by Henry Scougal called The Life of God and the Soul of Man. There Whitfield learned that Christianity is a vital union with the Son of God. It is Christ formed in the heart. Whitfield later wrote, Oh, what a ray of divine life did then break in upon my poor soul. From that moment, God has been carrying on his blessed work in my soul. And as I am now 55 years of age, I tell you, my brethren, I am more and more convinced that this union is the truth of God and that without it, you can never be saved by Jesus Christ. Whitfield was right. Salvation is so closely connected to Jesus Christ that unless you are joined to him, you can never be saved. Outside of Christ, there is only death and doom. What we have been saying is that in Christ, there is true life, both now and forevermore. Our Father in heaven, we give you praise for the great salvation that you have accomplished in and through Jesus Christ. Oh, to be joined to him by faith. Oh, this means everything for us who have come to you through faith in Christ. And it is our prayer that it will come to mean everything for those who remain outside. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen. You're listening to Every Last Word with Bible teacher Dr. Philip Ryken, a listener-supported ministry of the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. The Alliance exists to promote a biblical understanding and worldview. 
Drawing upon the insight and wisdom of Reformed theologians from decades and even centuries gone by, we seek to provide Christian teaching that will equip believers to understand and meet the challenges and opportunities of our time and place. Alliance Broadcasting includes the Bible Study Hour with Dr. James Boyce, Every Last Word with Bible Teacher Dr. Philip Riken, God's Living Word with Pastor the Reverend Richard Phillips, and Dr. Barnhouse and the Bible, featuring Donald Barnhouse. For more information on the Alliance, including a free introductory package for first-time callers, or to make a contribution, please call toll-free 1-800-488-1888. Again, that's 1-800-488-1888. You can also write the Alliance at Box 2000, Philadelphia, PA, 19103. Or you can visit us online at AllianceNet.org. Ask for your free resource catalog featuring books, audio, commentaries, booklets, videos, and a wealth of other materials from outstanding Reformed teachers and theologians. Thank you again for your continued support of this ministry.